here we are. Welcome once again to those of you who are here and those of you who are watching online, and eventually Pastor Dave. Hi. It's good to gather together. It's good to be together however we can get together. It's part of the beauty of how we are formed by God to be social creatures. But being social creatures, it's also that we're wired to compare ourselves against each other. I thought Lauren did a great job with the children. It's part of being a social creature to compare yourself against others. People of all ages experience this at one time or another. Social media capitalizes on this, right? Capitalizes on our inclination to compare ourselves to each other. This isn't new. This has been part of the human condition forever. Demonstrated by our New Testament passage today, our text is from the end of the Gospel of John, where this human desire for comparison crops up for Jesus' closest disciples, John and Peter. May God use this word to teach us and encourage us today. Please listen. The Gospel of John, chapter 22, verses 20 to 23. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. He was the one who reclined next to Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Follow me. So the rumor spread in the community that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we are in a sermon series exploring the ways that God can transform something broken or flawed in our human experience. Someone called it the holiness oxymoron series. I get that. We've considered things that normally don't get paired together with holiness. Holy gossip, holy disobedience. So what is holiness? We instinctively know what holiness is, but it's hard to put it into words exactly, to define it clearly. Holiness is something marked as different, distinctively related to God, set apart as sacred, but if you think about it and if you dig a little deeper, we find that God can use and redeem most anything in our human experience. That nothing is beyond the hand of God. Nothing is beyond God's holy redemption. Holiness is like God's nature, right? God is fully whole and fully complete. That idea of holiness as sacred wholeness Holiness as sacred wholeness, completeness. I've been thinking about that for the last couple of weeks. I really resonated with something that Pastor Dave said about holy gossip, that negative gossip is incomplete. It misses the chance to tell the whole gospel story where God is with us, changing us, transforming the community. Well, if that's the case for holy gossip, what about holy envy? Envy is something like gossip. It can be negative. It can fester. That's why the Ten Commandments 
talk about envy and coveting. But holy envy invites us to completeness. But it's unlike gossip. It invites us to an inner work of our own story, our own story with God where we seek the complete story about the strong feelings we have and how God can transform them and redeem them. First, let's pause to unpack the difference between envy and jealousy. I really noticed this as I tried to get a cute meme for you all. It's all confused out there. We sometimes mix up these terms. We mix them up because jealousy and envy can kind of feel similar. You know, that sharp, heated feeling. Maybe some of you might know that feeling of feeling a little nauseous, a little hot. So jealousy. Jealousy is the fear of losing a relationship, a connection, due to some interloper, a third party who is a threat or perceived threat to your relationship. Envy is different. Envy is coveting, wishing for that which someone else has, comparing your lack with their gain. You know, social scientists have a great definition that I appreciated. Envy occurs when a person lacks another's superior quality, achievement, or possession, and either desires it or wishes the other lacked it. Envy arises especially when one feels similar enough to the other person, that, enough that social compare, feels similar enough to the other person that social comparison happens. I think I missed a word. Interestingly, it arises when someone's similar. That's why maybe you're more envious of a colleague, a former classmate, a neighbor, a family member, than you are for a celebrity. Maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like that person closest to you usually is the one who sparks that envy. You know, some pastors have asked me if I'm envious of Pastor Dave, his gifts, his winsomeness, and I tell them, actually, no, I'm not. I, I'm not envious of him. I love those same things about him that you do. But it's not because I'm saintly. Yesterday was my 10th year anniversary of my ordination, and I realized sometimes I compare myself to middle-aged women, not so much younger men, middle-aged women who went into ministry, especially those who were called a little earlier than I was. I started seminary at 40. I compare and feel a little left behind, or I've had a slow path. You know, sociologists... They say that a certain level of social comparison is good. Admiration and inspiration can be good. People see possibilities. That is what a role model can bring you. It gives us goals. But comparison can go too far into bitter envy, and then it becomes dangerous. Our passage this morning is a story of Comparison between two disciples, both who were part of the inner circle around Jesus. John, who had a deep, loving friendship with Jesus and a calling to witness and record the good news. Peter, also a close disciple in the close circle, he's called to lead the people. And we see this comparison brought up by Peter, and we can put ourselves in that story and use our imagination to imagine the potential envy. Imagine how Peter got there asking, what about this guy? 
I read the passage and I wonder, Peter, you have enjoyed this amazing miracle. How joyful you must be. Your beloved teacher is alive, resurrected from the dead, and you get to restart. And you've had this redemptive, loving conversation with Jesus. He has reaffirmed your love. He shared a prophetic word about your future, full of purpose, but there's also some pain ahead. So what do you do, Peter? You turn around and compare to John. What about him, Jesus? What about John? What are you thinking, Peter? Imagine with me Peter's story. Remember, he had these high points with Jesus he was chosen as one of the inner circle. Like I mentioned, he experienced the miracle of walking on water. Wouldn't that be cool? Jesus told Peter that he'd be the rock upon which he would build his church. He gave him a cool name. You know, when someone gives you a cool nickname, you feel like a cool insider. But then Peter had failures, right? Peter said, Jesus, don't wash my feet, when that was what was on the program for the Last Supper. Peter fell asleep that night in Gethsemane, and all Jesus wanted him to do was stay awake. But then worst of all, the worst thing was Peter's betrayal on the night Jesus was arrested. Peter denied knowing Jesus three times in the courtyard, and Peter bitterly wept about this failure. And then Peter returned home after Jesus' death and resurrection. He returned to his fishing other disciples joined him. I think, I think Peter just has to work. That's what Peter does. He works, he strives, he works hard. He doesn't always think things through, but he works hard. So one night, as the crew had a bad night fishing, they look on the shore, and there's Jesus with some help for the fishermen. And once Peter sees Jesus, he leaps off of the boat, and he swims to shore. Shore was only 100 yards away. He could have waited, but that's what Peter do, does. He works hard. He strives. I picture that frantic energy, but Jesus calms him down, feeds him first, and then do you remember that back and forth? Peter, do you love me? Yes, I do, Lord. The second time, Peter, do you love me? Yes, I do, Lord. The third time, Peter, do you love me? Peter's hurt. He says, Lord, you know everything about me. You know that I do. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. This conversation restores Peter to Jesus, confirms Peter's calling to feed the sheep, to lead the church. Jesus says, feed my sheep, follow my way, lead my church. It will be hard, but you will do it. You'll suffer, but you can do it. I feel like Peter should feel pretty secure right now, right? He'd have a lot of questions. So why does he ask this question, what about him, Jesus? What about John? Do you notice in the Gospels, Jesus doesn't waste the questions. The questions are important. They matter. What is it to you, Jesus asks. Hmm. What is it to you, Peter? So Peter examined the full story. What's the inner truth? What is it to you? Envy or comparison should prompt us to seek that full truth. Seek wisdom. We have wisdom from this uh, 
passage from the book of James. It tells us, who is wise and understanding among you? Show by your good life that your works are done with gentleness born of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not be boastful and false to the truth. So what do we imagine was Peter's truth? We need to use a little imagination, but I imagine knowing that Peter always worked hard, there was always a lot of action and not always thinking things through. Why does he operate like that? Why do I operate like that sometimes, trying to prove something all the time? Why the comparison with John? Well, I imagine Peter is feeling hurt still, ashamed, a little insecure, maybe fearful that he'll mess up again. This other guy, the beloved one, John, he seems to be at the center of things, but he doesn't seem to have to work as hard. He doesn't seem to mess up. He's just there being all beloved. My favorite researcher about emotions, Brene Brown, in her new book, you knew I'd bring her up, didn't you? <laughs> what she says is resentment is about envy. I thought that was interesting. Resentment is about envy. Resentment is the feeling of frustration, judgment, anger, better than, related to perceived unfairness. It's an emotion we experience when we fail to set boundaries or ask for what we need or when experiences, expectations let us down because they were based on things we can't control. And she suggests a better way. She says, now when I begin to, when I start to feel resentful, instead of thinking, what is that person doing wrong? Or what should they be doing? I think instead, what do I need but I'm afraid to ask for? I know that feeling. Anyone else know that feeling? <laughs> when I'm working hard and I don't take time off and I feel resentful that somehow other people get a break, but I'm afraid to ask for what I need. I feel I don't have permission. I feel I have to perform and prove something instead of receiving God's love, God's unconditional love. It's here for all of us. We all have a place in God's kingdom. So friends, whether that envy comes out of you as a desire for what somebody has or, or maybe as resentment, we need to use those burning moments, those burning feelings to explore with God about whether we have to deal with something that we feel we lack. So back to our working definition of holy envy, that envy is made holy when you don't fight the feeling, but you explore it more deeply, bringing God to your growth, seeking the full gospel story. So when we experience those hot jabs, the emotion of envy, what does that mean for us? Well, the first step is we've got to take that other person out of it, set it aside, set aside that person we envy, shift our focus and explore our feelings with God. Now, if they're provoking us on purpose, well, don't give them that power, but if they're simply providing a mirror for us to see and experience our emotions, then God can use this with us. Take them out of the equation, and we turn to God, and we turn envy into holy envy, and we find out, what is it that I am yearning for? You know, maybe we envy that house not just because it's beautiful, 
but because it symbolizes security and safety. Maybe we envy that healthy family that's thriving because we yearn for unconditional love, for belonging, to not feel lonely. It's a good and human thing to desire love, belonging, and safety and security. Maybe we envy that person's job because our day-to-day -day life doesn't seem very meaningful, but theirs does. That's an opportunity to explore our holy purpose or our holy zeal. You know, throughout the New Testament, there's a Greek word that's translated as envy when it's negative, but when it's positive, it's translated as zeal. Maybe holy envy is a wake-up call to step into, find our passion for a holy zeal for life, for a purpose. Well, we've got evidence that Peter figured it out, you know. He developed some holy zeal and wisdom. He was a strong and courageous leader of the early church. Tradition has it that he was a martyr. Peter can figure it out. We can too. Now, I want to pause here and say I don't want to make light of the pain that unmet needs and desires can have for us. These can hurt. Sometimes it feels like the wishes we have, the yearnings, the losses, that they're breaking us. And this is an invitation to lament to God. We should pursue our deepest places, the complete story where God's good news meets us in our hurt, in our lament, where we are not alone in our crying out. So friends, we take that third person out of the equation we explore with God. Holy envy is a first step for holy zeal, holy yearning, or holy lament. Holy envy invites us to completion, an inner work, our own whole story with God, the complete good news for us about the strong feelings we have and the way that God can transform them into something holy. So Jesus asks Peter, he asks you and I, what's it to you? Follow me. So let's follow Jesus and explore the fullness of the good news for our lives. And the church says, amen. <laughs> <laughs>